again. Thanks again, Phil. Can you hear me now? Yes. Okay. Yes. Hello, everybody. I'm Don. I'm an alcoholic. And uh, it's lovely to see some familiar faces here today. And uh, thanks, everyone that sent me good wishes. Um, it's, it's, it's nice. I, I don't usually go on much about how long I'm sober. But I remember reading something. If we don't pick a particular day to celebrate something, then we might never celebrate it, you know, um, like Father's Day and Mother's Day and Christmas and stuff like that. Um, if we didn't, if we didn't pick a day to celebrate, um, we, we probably wouldn't. Um, I wouldn't anyway. I wouldn't think of it. But uh, you know, other people's length of sobriety and all that may not be that important to other people listening. You know, because and I hear some people, you know, um, complain about people going on about how long they're sober and stuff like that. And you know, it's still important to the person. Uh, themselves though you know it is very important to me that i'm that i'm still sober not so much the length but that, that i'm still sober because I, I i stand to lose an awful lot if i if i lost my sobriety you know if i if i picked up a drink i, I would still lose an awful lot when I, when when i stopped drinking i stopped because i was going to lose more than my drinking was worth to me you know um i was i was only 26 years old and i know by well by standards then that was very young uh, I mean, the, probably the nearest in age, the average member was probably in their 50s at that time, you know, and uh, would have been twice my age, apart from the occasional young person that I would meet now and again, you know, and uh, I didn't, I didn't mind that, they were very good, I mean, they, were, they, were, they, were, they, they took an interest in me, they, as soon as I was three months sober, they made me secretary of a group, you know, as soon as that three months was over, I felt like drinking because I thought I was losing something very precious when me three months was up. And a lot of people identify with that. You know, a lot of people feel, I felt like that. But I shared it with somebody. I shared it with a lady called Teresa uh, that I, I felt like, you know, packing it in because I was only wasting my time. I was going to fail anyway eventually, you know. I wouldn't, you know, somewhere along the way I was going to trip up or fail and I was as well to get out now is kind of how I was feeling, you know, and uh, she says, Don, you're just thinking about, you know, you're just looking at taking the easy way out again, you know, and uh, she was, she was right, she was absolutely right, I was looking at taking the easy way out, because taking a drink is taking the easy way out, it's, it's a shortcut to, to feeling good, or at least it looks and presents itself in our mind as a shortcut to feeling good, but uh, once we learn to think it through, and think through to what's really going to happen when I pick up a drink, you know, then it's, then it looks different, you know, so we have to slow down in our thinking, you know, um, I think now it's pretty well known that we have two, we have two um, modes of thinking, you know, we have a fast, almost automatic way of thinking, and we have a slow, considering way of thinking, and uh, I, I, very much agree with that and uh, there's been studies done into it it's been helpful to me reading about because it i it's it helps me get to know myself a little better and uh if i slow down and consider things that's kind of my higher power if i slow down i don't call it higher power i just call it looking slowing down and thinking considering something with care rather than just jumping to a conclusion and thinking quickly about something and making decisions without giving them proper consideration but uh you know through the years uh I've been in, lived in different places and uh, I eventually wound up working my way back to live in the house I was born in and that's where I'm sitting now. 
um, here in Sligo. And uh, when I came back here about 30 years ago now, the, the nearest meeting was 20 miles away. And uh, I went to that meeting um, fairly regularly and it was good. It was, a, it was a very good meeting. But then there was like three of us in, in the area where I live, which is a quiet little area. And one of them was a local butcher and the other was a local farmer. And he was also a putching maker. He, he was, he was, he didn't look like an Irishman at all. He looked more like a Mexican. And he was almost pure black because he stayed up all night with a, you know, brewing putching with a gas fire and in a small hut somewhere. And he just looked terrible. He had a, you know, but um, anyway, the local butcher was also the, he was also the manager of the local soccer team. And he was a really, a really controlled, control kind of guy, Big Paddy he was known as, and the meeting became known as Big Paddy's meeting. So I went to that meeting for about, I don't know, 15-20 years or something, and it really didn't do me any good at all. It, it, uh, I should have left it early on, but I, I eventually left it, and uh, I, I started to improve a bit again after I'd done that. So really it makes me think that AA is only as good as the area you're in and the meeting you go to you know because like every meeting is autonomous so you get good you do get variations in meetings and uh, they were just going to the meeting so they could you know um put a put a tick on the on the day that they've been to a meeting it hadn't really anything to do much with the substance of it but it saved us traveling 20 miles you know which was probably the reason we kept going to it but uh anyway i got through that um without ever drinking although it didn't do me a lot of good I had plenty of other things going on in my life, you know. I had, I, I, one of the things I was going to lose back in 1980 was I had a relationship with a girl that was sort of going better than previous relationships I'd had. And it had more of a future as well, and I didn't want to lose it. I, I'd also been living with a sister, and she gave me she gave me an hour to get me things together on Sunday morning and to leave and go and find someplace else to stay. She said she couldn't, she couldn't allow me to stay, to keep living in her house and me behaving and living the way I was. So I didn't like that very much, but, you know, I had to do what she was right. It was her house. And uh, later on, I discovered that it was actually a, a, a bit of a ruse between her and my girlfriend, you know, that had uh, arranged or organized a kind of an intervention. And they had talked to an AA member about it, about me and me, where I was living and all that. And he gave them this advice, you know, to, to, to stop enabling me to do what I was doing. And, uh, you know, pull the rug from under my feet, like which which they did, and uh, I managed to keep going for um, I don't know about two to three months, you know. But I went downhill very rapidly, you know. And uh, one of the things my sister said to me was when she was leaving was, you know, that I could bring my washing back to her, that she'd uh, that she'd look after me washing for me. I suppose she had in mind that you know that I was going to go downhill and that I was going to need my washing done fairly soon. But uh, I had thoughts in my head, I'm not fucking bringing me washing back, you know, to, to you, that type of thinking. Um, it was, uh, I was very resentful towards her. And uh, anyway, I, she had given me a number, she had given me the telephone number of actually of the guy that she had been talking to, or that they had been talking to. And uh, eventually I rang him and uh, got to know him. But uh, before that, I went to a treatment center um, looking for advice. I didn't look very good. I actually, things weren't quite as bad as I looked. I had a job at the time, and I was working for a company. It was a, 
a subsidiary of an American company called Gen General Electric. You probably most of the Americans know that company. They had a subsidiary here in near Dublin, and I was working for them, and it was quite a good job. But I was just holding on to it by, by my, you know, by my fingernails. But uh, one of the reasons I was able to hold on to the job that I was one of very few people that had the trade that I had. I, I happened to be not a it's not a big deal of a trade. I was a pipe fitter welder, but there's very few of them in Ireland. And they didn't want to let me go because if they let me go, the, you know, as bad as I was, they had no replacement for me. So I managed to hold on with them. And even health insurance was one of the was one of the perks of the job. And I feel that if, if the guy in the treatment centre that I, you know, went to when I looked for for help, when I eventually, you know, allowed for it chink in the armor at all because I denied completely that I was an alcoholic and the last thing I ever wanted to be in my life was an alcoholic so I, I'd done things especially to avoid having the finger pointed at me that I might be an alcoholic you know I, I never drank in the mornings for instance and, and other things that would suggest you're an alcoholic I, I avoided as well because I was I was a bar drinker a pub drinker and of course there's rules when you're a pub drinker there's things you don't do because if you do you're across the line you know that sort of thing and I make sure you know that even if I crossed the line, nobody would know about it, you know, to, to deny very strenuously that I was an alcoholic. But uh, on this particular day that I went to a place called St. John of God's in uh, Stellorgan up in Dublin, uh, I, all that had fallen away, you know. I, was, I had no plan. I had no recovery plan of my own. I, I couldn't come up with a way out like I did on previous occasions. And uh, I talked to a brother. He was... the the you know the typical friar took he had a brown brown habit or whatever it is on him brown robe with a white rope around his belly tying it on you know he was the real deal and I talked to him about the situation and he didn't invite me to you know to come in as patient he he told me where the AA meeting was that night you know and on on, on the Wednesday night and it was in a place called Boghall Road in Bray uh, just a few miles outside of Dublin and he says go up there he says you know you'll meet people. That started out the very same as you did. They would have been the very same as you are now when they started. He says you'll meet people that were like that, and they'll help you. And uh, and that's what I done. I um, I went to that meeting that night. It was it was like the end of July. It's a bit day, a bit like today. Only it was worse. It was like it was like I had a bit of an apocalypse. There was a thunderstorm as I waited for the bus to go to the meeting, and it was just lashing down with rain. And I was sheltering in the door of a pub that I was a regular, fairly regular uh, in, um, called the Ards Moor on Bray High Street. <clears throat> but I waited and eventually a bus came and I got the bus up to the to the meeting. And I was, well, I got there a short time before it was over. And, uh, you know, the little guy that was doing the chair, he was an elderly man called Donal. It turned out he was a writer. He wrote books about history, Irish history, and especially the history of, of, um, of, of, um, big estates and houses in Ireland. And uh, he was talking about procrastination. You know, I remember like it was yesterday and uh, I had no idea what progress, procrastination was. And I had a bottle of orange, fizzy orange in my pocket and I was nervous in case anybody would see it. I was shaking like a leaf, you know? And I felt, you know, I even felt nervous about having a bottle of, of orange in my pocket and my mouth kept going dry every few seconds. I'd be pure dry, you know, that nervous state. Luckily, one of the members that was there, there was, there was uh, three people at the meeting and the, and the, and the person doing the, the lead or the chair. And the other man's name was Coley and there was two elderly ladies. 
and they were really nice. I can't remember their names, unfortunately, but they're all passed away now quite a while, you know. And uh, Coley, the other man that was there, invited me over to his house for a cup of tea after the meeting. And uh, I went over, and it was in a place called White City. It's actually the same place that uh, our famous boxer, Katie Taylor, comes from. And it's a place that I wouldn't have gone to, you know. It's a place like, um, it's like Summer Hill in Dublin or maybe the ghetto in New York or something like that. It's not, not a great place, but I, well, I was quite happy to go, to go with him to, to his house for a cup of tea that night. And uh, it was one of the best things I've, I've ever done. You know, he, um, he was a great help. I won't take the time to go into it because I've done it before. But <clears throat> he even had, a, he even had a, a thing about shoes. He says he couldn't pass a shoe shop without buying a pair of shoes. And he opened the door of his bedroom and showed me his wardrobe. And he had a wardrobe like that was half full, which all the way up was shoes. You know? And I mean, my credibility would have gone through the floor if the guys I worked with knew I was in the house you know, with the man like him. And yet I, I, I left his house that night feeling that it's two stone lighter, you know, or 28 pounds lighter. I, I, I had a spring in my step leaving his house with, of, of hope, you know, um, due to other things he said. And I remember his father-in-law came in while we were sitting talking and he was a little bit drunk and he got me to hold the door open for him and he helped the father-in-law through and helped him up the stairs. And Little bit after that, his wife came in, and his wife was really haggard looking. She looked like she was like twice as old as the man I was talking to uh, at the table. But it turned out she had a, a condition, an illness that caused her to be like that. But the one impression he made of me was that everything wasn't right in his life. You know, he still had loads of problems, yet yet he was sober. He was absolutely sober, and he had just spent uh, a week driving um, oh, a famous star around around Dublin, and. Uh, telling me all about that he was full of that he, he was a, a cab driver and, a, and an undertaker he worked for an undertaker as well and told me all this stuff and he even told me that he could still go in a pub you know as long as he didn't drink you know as long as he had a reason for going in and that he didn't drink alcohol he could have a soft drink he even told me that which was actually good for me i know it's not a good policy and i, I just i stopped doing that later but it was kind of good to hear that then because for me being barred or stopped from going in a pub was seemed worse than been stopped from drinking, you know. I, I didn't know how I'd survive because, like, oh, the pub was everything to me. It was the employment exchange and the estate agent, and, and it was everything to me at that time. <coughs> um, but, uh, you know, um, apart from after the six months, you know, after that, uh, the initial three months and then three months as a secretary, I had a, a hiccup that night. The fact that I shared it with somebody, I didn't drink. And I've never really had a serious um, compulsion or thought or, you know, even wanted to drink since that. All through, all through the years, I've seen clearly, you know, that um, my life is better without drinking. It's better without being sober. And it's like I'm not able to handle drink anyway. I'm not able to handle alcohol. It's as simple as that. I was like, I, now I can see I was a, like a very low functioning alcoholic. I couldn't drink very much. And you know. That I had drink, and as far as another thing I learned was that well, I thought that drink suited me at first. I might have thought that, but anybody that cared about me that would have seen me drinking, they wouldn't have thought that. You know, they would have seen that it it, it was um, you know, it changed me too too much. You know, it made me into a different person. You know, I'd say and do things that I'd never do when I had drink taken. But uh, you know, um. Life goes on, you know. It's 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 a part of my life now, and it's really um. <clears throat> in in another uh, few weeks, I have my 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 
belly button birthday, as you call it, and I'll be 70 uh, in, in August. And uh, shortly after that, in November, my wife and I will be, I think, 43. Yeah, we'll be 43 years married. I got married a few months after I came into AA. Um, so it's a big year of anniversaries for me. And, uh, you know, it's going pretty well. My daughter, my youngest daughter, you know, who's a wonderful girl, you know, and it's, it's great, it's wonderful to have her love. And I have three more children as well. that I, you know, we all get on quite well. You know, we've got good relationships. So anyway, they're taking me over to Bristol in the south of England to do a balloon ride. You know, it should be a, it'll be a first for me. And uh, I'm looking forward to it. I'm hoping the weather will be good for it. And, um, we're going to a comedy show on Friday. We're going to see a, a, a list of comedians, all of whom I like up there next door to where Derek lives. And, uh, you know, we, we have things like that. Life, life is good. Life has been good for years for me, really, even though I live a fairly quiet life. I get problems from time to time, you know, um, challenges, really, not problems, just challenges that I know I can get over and can get through. And, uh, you know, we have a challenging time at the moment. of a daughter, one of our daughters is ill. She has endometriosis, which is a horrible illness. And she's been through the wars with that. And at the moment, my wife is over in England with her. And this is a regular thing, you know, as soon as she gets a phone call from my daughter and she calls the, she calls the, uh, uh, Ryanair and she buys a ticket and I bring her to the airport and she's gone and, and you know in a few hours I can this can happen <clears throat> and I fend for myself and I support her in, in doing what she's doing you know and uh, uh, it's it's tough it's tough going she had to go into hospital there at the weekend and she had to have a catheter put in and you know it's it's not nice you know she has she has a young lad he's our only grandchild he's 15 uh and uh, and that's I guess mainly why my wife goes straight over at the drop of a hat. She'll go. She goes over to take over his care while my daughter's in hospital or while she's recovering from whichever stage she's at in her illness. So it's wonderful. It's great to be. I mean, it's great to be sober and to be to be um, in touch with all that and to be a, to be a help and to you know be able to take part in it. Um, I'm, I, I don't have any big plan about staying sober or how you stay sober or anything like that. You just, you just follow the event, really, of your life. It's, it's, it's your life and, and make the best decisions you can as you go along. And if you, if, you, if you make a wrong decision, to be prepared to admit it and change it. You know, I love that step 10, really, that, you know, that no matter what you're doing, if you're digging a hole, you can stop at any stage and, you know, start to fill it in again. You don't have to keep going don't have to keep going just because it was your idea or your pet, your pet theory or something like that you know you can stop as soon as you discover you're on the wrong track and if you're on the right track you can keep going you know so geez i think i'm long enough now uh, be nice to hear from some of you and me get me breath thanks everybody